Hi, my name is Jim Binden, and I'm an old white guy who'd like to talk about race. I'd like to start with my background and how I got involved in trying to understand about race. I grew up in San Francisco from the late 1940s to the late 1960s. My first exposure to race and racism completely went over my head. When I was five years old, I took a trip and visited Texas and Louisiana. At the same time as the Baton Rouge bus boycott was going on to protest Jim Crow laws, I was drinking from the white drinking fountain. I remember the labels on the drinking fountains, but they made no sense to me, and it never occurred to me that I was witnessing racism in action. I was aware of segregated residential patterns in San Francisco as I grew up, but it felt to me like there was an air of tolerance in the city. In hindsight, I realized that was just my white privilege ignoring racism. When I was in grade school, the Hunters Point Public Housing Project was built almost exclusively for blacks. Earlier public housing projects had been almost exclusively reserved for whites. I didn't know about this. I thought my high school class was diverse with Italian Catholics and Eastern European Jews and wasps like me tracing back to England through both parents as well as African Americans Mexican-Americans, and second- or third-generation Asian-Americans with mostly Chinese or Japanese roots. Many of the Japanese students, of course, had parents who had only been freed from the relocation centers after World War II when they were no longer deemed a threat to national security because of their race. This also was never discussed openly. I learned about it through a family friend in Los Angeles who had a Japanese friend who had lost his property when he was sent to one of these centers. I was about 10 when I first met him, and I had no real idea of what had gone on. This came back to me in a conversation I overheard between two inductees into my high school hall of merit when I was inducted in 2010. Both of their families had been in the camps. It's interesting what you don't see when you don't look. I was blithely unaware of the history of racism in the San Francisco Bay Area. If I had studied it, I might have learned about it being a hotbed of eugenics early in the 20th century. The first president of Stanford University, David Starr Jordan, played a key role in expanding eugenic sterilization in the United States. In 1915, the year my dad migrated to San Francisco from Vancouver, Canada, the Panama Pacific International Exposition was held. There, the Race Betterment Foundation had a display that left no doubt about the superiority of certain kinds of Europeans over other Europeans and all others. Mexicans and Chinese had suffered extreme prejudice in California since they first arrived in the 19th century. Black migrants started coming in large numbers in the 1930s and were subjected to similar racism. But growing up, I was unaware of this history. When I was in the fifth grade, I remember my father yelling at the national news on the television when the Little Rock Nine were prevented from enrolling in high school. It was easy then to feel superior to the racist Southerners who were blocking their way. Like most white families steeped in the American racial smog, we rarely spoke about race. When we did address it, it was mostly to confirm that we weren't racists, and for the most part, I thought that was all that was needed. I graduated from high school and joined the Naval Reserves to avoid being drafted into the Army at the height of the Vietnam War. I attended UC Davis as a freshman following a pre-med curriculum. At the end of my freshman year, I was called to active duty. 
I was thrown together with sailors from all over the country during my training as a hospital corpsman. That was the first time that I actually saw vicious racism in a face-to-face setting. When I finished my two-year tour, I went back to school, this time at Berkeley. I was late registering, and I couldn't get the introductory course in psychology that I wanted. I could, however, get into the introduction to physical anthropology. The team teaching it included two members of the National Academy of Sciences, Sherry Washburn and F. Clark Howell. In spite of difficulties, including the firebombing of the auditorium where that class was held, and later having to dodge clouds of pepper gas from circling helicopters, I fell in love with this discipline, which, for me, merged the best aspects of science with behavioral studies. Little did I know that I was embracing the home discipline of race. I got married and didn't return to Berkeley for two years. One of the courses I took when I returned foreshadowed my later interest in race. That was human variation taught by Professor Vince Sarich. He taught a very different version of race than I would when I finally got around to it, one that viewed the human races as valid biological units with significant evolutionary separation. Needless to say, he did not present Richard Lewinton's then-just-published analysis of genetic variation, proving how little race actually counted for. From Berkeley, I went to study human adaptation for my grad work at Penn State. My mentor there was Paul Baker, another member of the National Academy of Sciences. His mentor at Harvard had been Ernest Houghton, who had almost single-handedly established the biological validity of race in 20th century American academia. I had no idea of the legacy that I was pursuing. I experienced racism against myself for the first time in my first graduate field season when it was difficult to obtain housing in a Japanese residential area of Honolulu. That was a good lesson. It stayed with me. When I taught my first class at the University of Alabama in the late 1970s, I was more worried about teaching human evolution in the Bible Belt than I was about teaching race in the South. My early classes included short modules on the lack of validity of claims about race and intelligence that were rife during the 60s and 70s, but I cut that topic out entirely later in the 1980s when it seemed to me that that argument had been won by the non-race camp and the students no longer needed that particular lesson. One of my running partners in those days was an administrator at the university. One day when I went to his office in the late 1980s, I saw a shelf of race and IQ books. I realized how ignorant this PhD was on the topic of race, and as a result, I started taking more care to cover race in every class. Taking a cue for many of my presentations from Stephen Jay Gould's excellent book, The Mismeasure of Man. That was where I stood when The Bell Curve was published in 1994. It was clear to me that this was a book that required refutation in the classroom, particularly the anthropological classroom. But I was in the middle of my stint as chairman of the anthropology department, and I didn't have the time to create a new course focusing on the issues raised by the bell curve. I started doing more reading about race, and after finishing my gig as chairman, my second semester back as a professor, I offered a tutorial on race, to build my own background while I was training some undergraduate students on the topic. Then I proposed my course on race where I could formally try to undo 150 years of bad anthropology. About this same time, I became interested in my personal genealogy. I began finding my maternal and paternal family lines. 
At one point, I exchanged emails with a distant cousin on my mother's side who had done a lot of work at fleshing out that side of the family. When she shared her resources with me, one of the items that she had obtained was an 1815 will executed in Virginia from my mother's great-great-grandfather that included an appraisal of four slaves, one Negro woman named Betty, one Negro girl named Millie, one Negro boy named Tom, and one Negro girl named Mariah. The four humans were appraised at a value of $920. Reading that document changed my understanding of my privilege in a way I don't think anything else could have. I have since corresponded with another distant relative that comes from a side of my mother's family formed by one of my mother's great uncles taking one of the female slaves and starting the black wing of my maternal family. At least he had the good grace to take her as, a, as his wife. I don't want to think about the African-American relatives I have out there as a result of rape of female slaves, like in the Jefferson line, but on a much smaller scale in good old Virginia. Learning these things about my family history made the race course all the more real and important to me. The second time I taught the course, I picked up a book by Joseph Graves, The Emperor's New Clothes, Biological Theories of Race at the Millennium. That book played an important role in my development of the course. I loved his description of the history of the race concept and the accessible way that he related biological facts about human genetic variation. I already taught a lot about variation in other courses, so what I felt I needed here was to add in the historical information and make human variation understandable to folks without a significant biological background. Over the years, I have become much more familiar with the literature on slavery, Jim Crow, institutional racism, white privilege, patterns of DNA variability, and other race-related topics. The students took to the material many of them thinking seriously about the idea of race for the first times in, in their lives. Because of the student response and my own love of the class, I continued to teach the course for eight years after I retired from the University of Alabama. I still do guest lectures on race for my colleagues, and one of my anthropology colleagues, Dr. Joe Weaver, has taken over the race class now and teaches it on a yearly basis. A former anthropology doctoral student, Dr. Tina Thomas, sat in on the race class and now she teaches her own variation of it at Juniata. Through the race class, I also became acquainted with a history professor, Dr. Eric Peterson, who teaches about the history of the race concept and who is letting me collaborate with him on a book project about the history of race and science. Because of all my work over the last 20 years, and also because of my lived experience, I think I have things to say about race that may be helpful in putting it into perspective for others. At the very least, if you listen along, you'll learn some fascinating trivia for cocktail party talk. Thank you for bearing with me. I'm Eric Peterson, and I am the historian of science at the University of Alabama. I think that I've been interested in this topic for a very long time. The neighborhood that I grew up in was pretty ethnically diverse, but the school that I went to was was very, very not. And I don't think that that bothered me at all at first. I mean, I didn't know to think anything of it until it became basketball season. And then you would quickly see all of the white kids who had been playing on the basketball courts slowly leave the basketball courts. And I always wondered, well, why is that? But I didn't think anything of this really in any official 
capacity until working on history of biology stuff kept running into the problem of race science in the 19th century, right around the same time that Darwin was working. And always wanted to know how did Darwin himself think about those sorts of things, but then where did this stuff come from and why did it hang around for such a long time and when did it stop being a thing? And the weird thing was that I don't think it ever stopped being a thing. And then that really bothered me too. And so then I wanted to study it more in more detail just to find out, again, why, why does race science hang around? Why is it in public discourse? Why do otherwise rational scientists continue to buy into stuff that it seems to me just common sense would say is a terrible idea and nobody should believe in it. But it keeps being kicked around year out and year. My name is Joe Weaver. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology. Ironically, I have never been taught in a classroom about race, but I now teach in a classroom about race. I, even as a graduate student, even as an undergraduate who studied biology, as a graduate student in anthropology, never learned anything about race. So everything I've learned about race has been taught to me by the illustrious Jim Binden and others. (laughs) Um, I grew up in, in Midwestern, you know, in Indiana in the 1980s, and my town was pretty racially non-diverse. It has gotten much more diverse since I grew up there, but it was, you know, I had, I have no memory of having friends of a racial persuasion that differed from mine ever growing up and very little consciousness of racial diversity, even though it might have existed. Since that time, I've looked back and thought, like, what really would have been the racial makeup Uh, of my school? Did I really think there were no black people or, or, you know, Hispanic people? Or was I just not talking to them? uh, I mean, I think it's a bit of both. In any case, I didn't really start thinking critically about these issues until I went to college. And I went to a elite, mostly white liberal arts college in the Northeast where everyone is supposed to be super accepting. And there was in the house that I lived in, there was this, this vandalism that occurred multiple times that was very racist. Wow. And I started thinking, what in the heck is going on here? Like, these are, these are the non-racist people. What is happening? And shortly after that, I started working in India. Those two things were unrelated. And after that, I started working in Brazil, where, as you said, there are very different ideas about sort of what constitutes race or important human difference. Anyway, I went to graduate school in anthropology. Um, I studied cultural anthropology because I was so fascinated by what I had seen traveling in India. I, I went to India before I became an anthropologist. And I studied health because as an undergraduate, I'd been a biology major, and, and I thought I wanted to go to medical school. And then I took physics, and it was all over. Wow. Um, actually, that's not true. physics made you hate No, things, I did great or? in physics. Oh, it was, it was the biochem that really killed oh. me. So, you know, I wanted, I've always been really interested in working with people and talking with people about what matters to them. And, and so I kind of went the studying medicine instead of doing medicine route. I really only started teaching about race when I came to the University of Alabama. Uh, I, I, one of the first, the first course I taught here was an intro to cultural anthropology. And there was not, if I remember correctly, a section explicitly devoted to race. But I thought, wow. I'm teaching at the University of Alabama. The schoolhouse door is on this campus. Exactly. Many of the students I teach don't even know it's here. And so I kind of, as a snowball effect without intending to, got more and more involved in the idea that my students coming out of this intro cultural anthropology class needed to have at least some grasp of race and its history on this campus. This was also around the time that here at the university there was the sorority segregation mm-hmm. scandal. There was the big article in the Atlantic that came out about the resegregation of public schools in America, focusing on Tuscaloosa. And so moving here made me feel like it was time to wise up and, and to you know, sort of 
do a little more than wish things were better. So I started learning and yeah. um, I still feel like by far the biggest rookie of this group because I've been doing this the least amount of time and I have no bona fide background whatsoever except wanting to know and having had some background in science. What do you think we mean when we talk about race science? That science has been marshaled over and over again, as you've shown in your work, to uh, make arguments about fundamental differences between people of different racial groups, right? And that, sure, things like the shape of your nose are related to your genes, but it turns out those don't intend to be linked to any other of the attributes that we assume yeah. are part of race science. So things like intelligence or athletic ability or, I don't know, civic feeling or whatever it might be yeah, that, yeah. that people associate as, as characteristics that are more like one race or more like another race. Um, we can't find biological traces of those, right? Yeah, no, that sounds really good. I think maybe some of this comes out of the desire to, to classify everything, to classify all human traits, to find differences between people, and then to say those differences themselves absolutely have to be able to be classified in one way or another. And then once we've classified them, then we begin to look for, well, what makes those differences? And it seems like, traditionally anyway, we either say it's decisions that humans have made, which seems ridiculous when it comes to your skin color or your hair color or whatever, or it's, you know, genes or some other biological component, or maybe it's culture, whatever culture is. But in each of those three explanations, it seems that what we've tended to do is draw scientists have tended to draw on personal experience and the ways that they already saw the world rather than the way that we usually think of science going, which is through testing. But when it comes to human diversity, I, I don't even, how do you run a test on what causes hair to be curly or straight? How do you do that? You talked already a little bit about what attracted you to study the history of race. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the work that you've done, like the book that you had come out recently, so that people know kind of what your scholarly authority? Uh, most of the stuff that I work on is history of biology and anthropology, uh, both sciences that have long histories on the one hand. But on the other hand, unlike something like physics or chemistry, we're very late in, in being called sciences with any regularity. And because of that, I think that you have this really interesting moment in the 18th century into the 19th century where people are beginning to say, hey, what we're doing is science, just like the physicists and the astronomers and all the other stuff that we feel more comfortable calling science. But we're working with animals and then increasingly uh, noticing differences in people and trying to explain those, but not using the techniques necessarily developed in uh, chemistry or physics, and yet wanting to have the, I don't know, what what is the word, the authority, I guess, of science. So you get this weird moment in the 19th century where a bunch of people are doing what we would think of as science, and they think that they have the authority of science, but they're not doing that science in the way that, say, somebody like an Isaac Newton would have done. They're not uh, coming up with mathematical uh, equations or geometric equations. They're not running tests over and over again. Instead, what they're doing is natural history. They're organizing people like animals and just sort of dividing out what's important and what's not. I think that's really fascinating. But that's not really what you're asking. You're asking, like, why should I be trusted at all on this stuff? I actually don't think I should be trusted <laughs> on this stuff. I just have lots and lots of questions. But um, I guess I uh, the one piece of expertise I bring to the table is that I'm really familiar with what's going on in the 18th, 19th, and then into the 20th century when it comes to all the ways that these different fields 
are interacting and the ways that scientists, say, from biology are communicating with anthropologists, but then taking the stuff that the anthropologists say, bringing it back into biology and putting a different spin on it, often a genetic spin, and then feeding that back to the anthropologists. So you get this nice little circle where uh, biologists become interested in anthropological questions but answer them in different ways than anthropologists do. But then the anthropologists who feel like they don't have the authority of biology say, borrow from the biological explanations and make them anthropological explanations. And then that's what gets put in textbooks. And it's what anthropologists say as well as what biologists say. So that's kind of interesting. I guess if we wanted to put a name to it, one of the things I, I study the most is how the networks of scientists, the relationships between networks of scientists end up impacting the scientific ideas themselves. Uh, I think that's really, really fascinating. It happens in physics and chemistry too, don't get me wrong, but I just know the stuff in biology and anthropology. So, Was there a moment that, you, that jumped out at you where you thought that you've been wrong about some of your preconceived notions, either about how people view race or how you yourself thought about race? Did you have an epiphany, I guess, is the question. Well, you know... Having children made me realize that I didn't want my kids to grow up in social circles where they only knew people who looked like them, which was what had happened with me. So I had this, I had a lot of ideological beef with racism, but my life as I lived it felt kind of racist. I didn't have any friends who weren't white, you know, growing up as a kid. And, and, and I thought to myself, well, I'm moving to a town, this Tuscaloosa, that's more racially diverse than any town I've ever lived in. And now is the time to put some legs with these ideologies. And so having children made me think more about sort of my own unstated and unintended biases around sort of like my social interactions oh. and, and my social circles. So that was an important one. What else? Well, the first semester I taught that cultural anthropology course, I, I gave a tour, or I, I didn't give a tour. I asked one of the faculty members on campus who gives a fantastic African-American heritage this tour was more about sort of like, what does that monument mean? What oh. is the schoolhouse door? What was happening when Authorine Lucy tried to enroll here at the university? So it's more kind of a recent historical look. After I gave that tour, I asked students to write a reflection, and many of them said, I wish we would stop talking about race. We're just making it a big deal, and it's awful. I hadn't taught specifically about institutional racism that first time. I had just taught about sort of racism and how anthropology views it, uh, and I had missed the institutional piece. And so there were so many students who were saying, we should just stop talking about it. That won't be a big deal anymore. We're, this was right around the time of all the police shootings beginning, sort of the first ones that were really uh, prominent, and I was like, oh, man, I have, I have failed here. I need to up my game yet uh, again. And we have monuments, too, I think, that many of which have come down, but there are still that up that, uh, that also memorialize people that are pretty terrible human beings. And yet there's that sense from students that maybe if we just stopped talking about all this stuff, it would kind of go away from white students, right? But, but students of color are like, why would we? We haven't even started talking about this stuff, right? It's here right in front of us, and we don't uh, really deal with any of the issues that surround those things. So maybe we should start talking about it more rather than less. Mm -hmm. 